We are continuing our study in Mark's Gospel. We are in chapter 2, beginning in verse 18 and going through the end of the chapter. Mark 2, 18 and following. The most popular verse in America from the Bible is no doubt Matthew 7 and verse 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. And in fact, I was reading a news article this morning, and uh, it was talking about a particular business in the southwest part of our country that had made a statement that was both religious and political in one of its flyers, and as a result, of course, was getting all kinds of feedback, the majority of it being negative. And you know that a news article today is really only this. It consists of about two paragraphs of whatever the issue is, followed by a list of what everybody's saying on Twitter. And that's what this article was. It said what, the, what had happened, and then it gave this list from Twitter. And one of the comments from Twitter was someone in large letters, all caps, saying, Thou shalt not judge. Never mind that they were judging the business owner in the process of telling him not to judge others. We never seem to see it in ourselves. In spite of the popularity of this verse, it is usually taking, taken out of its context. For Jesus does not say, do not absolutely judge at any time for anything. He goes on to say, you need to take the beam out of your own eyes so that you can see clearly to help others with the speck of dust that is in their own eye. He's talking about a self-righteous kind of judgment, not any kind of judgment at all. But never mind that. That is really not our point this morning. My point in using this verse to begin with is to acknowledge that there are a lot of spiritual judges in our day and age, and they are often hard to find because they do not come with a black robe and a gavel in their hand. Spiritual judges are those who measure everyone else's spirituality by their own standards. And then when you don't measure up, which of course is the norm, then we begin to criticize and condemn you. And as a result, we tend to stand in the place of spiritual superiority, looking down at others who are not as committed and not as faithful as we deem ourselves to be. Again, this does not mean that my standard or yours is necessarily biblical, though of course we think it is. It just means that we've got our list of rules and we expect everybody else to follow them. There is another name, a more common name, that this goes by. It is the name legalism. Legalism is raising to a biblical mandate or command that which God has not, a list of rules and regulations that rise to a level that they were never intended to be. And those, those lists might vary over time and certainly from place to place, but the heart behind them remains the same. We are going to see this morning in our text two rules that may not be hot-button issues in our own day, but we must be on guard that our heart is not like the heart of these opponents of Jesus. Because if they are, we will be found guilty of pointing our finger at others and being spiritual judges. Last week, we acknowledged that this section of Mark's gospel that runs from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way down to chapter 3 and verse 6, is a collection of controversies that occurred in the early part of his ministry while he was in Galilee. There are five of them. We looked at two of them last week. 
We looked at the story of the four friends who brought their lame friend to Jesus by lowering him into the house from the roof. And in that controversy, the scribes asked the significant question, who can forgive sins but God alone? And it was an important question, though they did not understand the ramifications of it. Because what they were asking was true, or what they were saying. What they did not make the connection with was the fact that Jesus is, in fact, God, and therefore He does have the authority to forgive sins. And then in the second controversy, we found Jesus in, the, in a home with Levi, who was His fifth called disciple, a tax collector by trade who had invited other tax collectors and sinners, two terms that were essentially synonymous And now Jesus is being accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners. The scribe says, why does He eat with these men? And we discovered that we are grateful that He does because we are sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Jesus made it very clear that it was for sinners which He came. I have not come to call the righteous, meaning the self-righteous, who do not understand their own need for salvation, but I have come to save and redeem sinners. Today we look at the third and fourth of these controversies, which strictly, strictly speaking do not involve Jesus, but they involve His disciples. And in those days, a rabbi was responsible or held accountable for the actions of his students. So in Mark chapter 2, we are looking at continued controversy. And we acknowledged last week that most of us do not, do not like controversy especially when that controversy goes on and on. In other words, when you have finally solved something, there is some conflict, and you have addressed it, and you have gotten beyond it, only to find another controversy coming right on its heels. It tends to wear us down over time. And the religious leaders are continually looking to find fault with Jesus in both His teaching and His actions, and therefore, the controversy continues. In fact, we'll see next week that the controversy is escalating. Well, let's look at Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Then controversy number four in verse 23 One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
In our first section, we are dealing with a controversy over fasting. Again, you may recall last week that we dealt with a controversy where they were claiming Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners, which indeed he was, but they were critical of that. And now they are being critical that the disciples are eating anything at all. There's a saying for that, which I will not repeat, that you cannot win either way. People are going to criticize you. They are going to create conflict no matter which way you go. John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees, though strictly speaking, the Pharisees did not have disciples, but they were both in a, in a spiritual discipline of fasting. And so the question then becomes, why are Jesus' disciples not doing the same spiritual things that the rest of the spiritual people are doing? And so the controversy begins with expectations from others, which is the way a lot of controversy does, in fact, begin. It is possible that John's disciples were fasting because of his arrest or maybe even his death. Again, we do not know exactly when these events occurred in the ministry of Jesus, though we know they occurred in the first year and a half in Galilee. We don't know the specific timetable, so we don't know for certain whether John has already been arrested or maybe he's already dead, but there is some likelihood to that. After all, in the Old Testament, we know that they did fast as a sign of mourning, so it is quite possible that that's the reason John's disciples were fasting. We know that the Pharisees, we know this from Scripture, that they fasted twice a week. And from outside sources of Scripture, we know that those two times during the week were Mondays and Thursdays. And their fasting was done more as an expression of piety and self-discipline or as a way to consecrate themselves. And so there was this expectation that the disciples of Jesus would demonstrate the same spiritual commitment and therefore practice fasting. Now, we talked a little bit about the Pharisees last week, but I want to add to that. The Pharisees were not a political party, and they were not to be equated with the priest. I'm afraid that because we tend to use the phrase, the, the, the religious rulers, we tend to equate them with the priest, but those were two separate groups. The Pharisees were indeed religious leaders, but they were laymen. We had a great question in our life group last week when we were beginning our talk on that parable that we're dealing with, the parable of the prodigal son or the loving father or the parable of two sons, whatever you want to call it. We had the question, how did the Pharisees make their living? From where did they get their money? And a very wise, and I might add beautiful woman in our group responded that the Pharisees, Paul was one of them, and he was a tent maker. So perhaps the Pharisees were lay people who had secular jobs, and indeed that is the case. So these men did not gain their living from the temple. They gained their living in other manners. The Pharisees had been around a long time by the time Jesus came along, about two centuries. It's a group that started during the Maccabean Revolt, and they were the only group, the only party, if you will, in, in the Jewish society of that day that survived the Roman Wars of A.D. 60 and 70s. The name Pharisees either means separated ones or holy ones, which again is why you could see last week they weren't real happy that Jesus was not separating himself from tax collectors and sinners. Now, since fasting is somewhat foreign to most of us, I am assuming that the majority of us do not practice fasting on a regular basis. I think we need a brief refresher of what it is and how it is practiced in the Bible. 
Strictly speaking, fasting is abstaining from food for a specified period of time for spiritual purposes. Now, I recognize that there are variants of that, both in the church and without. I know that there are secular forms of fasting that do not have spiritual purposes, but we are talking about Christian fasting, and so it is the abstaining from food for a specific period of time for a spiritual purpose. We know that Jesus fasted during his 40 days in the wilderness when he was tempted by the enemy, something we've already looked at in Mark's gospel, but that is the only occurrence in the New Testament where we are specifically told that Jesus fasted. The Bible often equates prayer and fasting together. Outside of that, fasting just quite frankly is not mentioned very often in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there was one prescribed fast annually. It was called the Day of Atonement, and it was a 24-hour fast designated as a day of cleansing from sin and affliction of the soul. But as time went on, the Jews added other fasts that weren't prescribed, but they became tradition. And I'm quite confident you remember our series from last summer on Sunday nights in the book of Zechariah, where we discovered that there were actually four other fasts added. There was a fast added to commemorate the time when the Babylonians besieged the city. There was a fast when the walls came in. That is a time to remember when the Babylonians were successful in knocking down the walls surrounding the city. A third fast was to commemorate when the temple was burned, and a fourth fast when the governor at that time was assassinated. All of these looking back to what had happened and mourning those events. And that is why in the book of Zechariah, the question then becomes, now that they are back in Jerusalem, should we continue these fasts now that that is history and we are back home? And we expected a yes, no answer. I mean, either Zechariah says, yes, keep doing it, or no, that's in the past. But what Zechariah says instead is there's a deeper issue here, and it's an issue of your heart. And what we're going to discover in our text this morning is that the same thing is, is found here. Should the disciples fast? They are with Jesus, so should they fast? And the, question, the answer is going to be not at this time, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So in response of the expectation to others, we see Jesus explains His actions or their actions, and He does so by the use of the example of a wedding. Though you have to understand that our understanding of what Jesus says is contingent upon what we know from later. That is, he calls himself the bridegroom, and we know that we, the church, are his bride. But that would have been a foreign concept when Jesus spoke these words. So though we rightly read that back into the text, that is not what the original audience would have been thinking. A Jewish wedding was a time of celebration. It lasted for seven days. Unless you were a widow who was remarrying, and then the celebration was a mere three days. But the last thing anybody would expect at a wedding was a fast. Though in our day, when you go to a wedding and all they serve are mints and nuts, you're pretty close to fasting at a wedding. My apologies if that's what you served at yours. Now, every man here knows that the most important thing at a wedding is the food especially if you are at a wedding that you have been drugged to against your will, where I have virtually described every single wedding you've ever been to. 
So you know food is important because it is part of the celebration, all the more so in Jesus' day when it was a week-long event. And so he uses that as an example, and he says, as long as the bridegroom is present, you're not going to fast because it's a time of rejoicing. It is a time of celebration. But Jesus does acknowledge that the time is coming when the bridegroom will be taken away, and then things will change. The term taken away is a very strong way to put it here. And in fact, it's sort of alien to the whole idea of a wedding. In our culture, a wedding ends when the bride and groom get in whatever vehicle they are going to take to to leave on on their honeymoon, and they, they exit. Or perhaps it ends when guests begin to trickle away and go back home. But here Jesus speaks of the bridegroom being forcefully taken away. And again, from our perspective, looking back, we understand that this is the first and veiled reference to what is going to happen to Jesus in the future, and, and it helps us understand that He knows the consequences that lie ahead for Him, while at the same time we have to acknowledge that that is not, again, how the initial audience would have taken this. They would not have heard that as an early indicator of His arrest, crucifixion, and death, though, again, rightfully so, we look back and see that. So there is a time for fasting, and there is a time for feasting. And while Jesus is with the disciples, it is a time for feasting. And so to further explain their actions, he ends this controversy with two illustrations of his purpose. And while these two illustrations are different in their pictures, their purpose and message is the same. The first one states that a new patch is not put onto old clothing. Now, my parents raised us in church. We were there Every time the doors were open, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, we were at church. It was not a question in our home. But as often as we went to church, I am confident that my mother did not know this verse because she did, in fact, sew new patches on my old garments. When my jeans got holes in their knees, I got patches on my jeans. Now, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, years ago when you got holes in your jeans, it was a sign of poverty. And rather than buying new jeans, you patch them up as a way of making them last longer. Now, we buy jeans with holes on them at expensive prices, I might add. And so, things have totally changed. But back in those days, we sold new patches on old garments trying to prolong their use. Though Jesus says it doesn't work. Because if you sew a new patch on an old garment, when you wash that garment, the new patch is going to shrink and it then is going to tear a greater hole in the garment itself. And then the second illustration is about new wine being put into old wineskins. Goat skins were used as containers for wine because of their strength and because of their flexibility. But if you put new wine into old skins, it's sort of the opposite now. As that wine fermented and expanded, it had the very real potential of bursting the brittle and old wineskins, and as a result, the wine and the skins themselves were destroyed. So what's the point? I mean, Jesus is not talking about jeans with patches or even wineskins and wine. What is he talking about? He is talking about himself. Remember week one, the kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God is at hand. And this kingdom is not an addendum to the old kingdom. 
This is not something that we just add on to whatever we've already had in the past. This is something radically new. Judaism, as good as it was, has now been fulfilled and superseded. And as a result, the old is no longer useful. The gospel was not something to to merely add on to Judaism, take everything you've had in the past and just sort of sprinkle Jesus on with it. Instead, the new has replaced the old, and sometimes we call it the new covenant replacing the old covenant. And that is precisely what they could not see. Instead of the question that we saw last week, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, the question they really should have been asking or the question we need to ask of them is, why won't you eat with Jesus? Why are you standing outside if we go back to Levi's party? Why, do we, why are you standing outside criticizing Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners instead of enjoying the party yourself? Why aren't you celebrating You're the ones who know the Old Testament. You're the ones who have studied the Old Testament. You're the ones that should know of the coming Messiah and therefore should see in Jesus the fulfillment of everything you've been looking for, and instead they are standing outside criticizing. The fact that they were unwilling to join the party is evidence of their non-acceptance of His person. Sort of reminds you of the parable we're looking at in life groups, the elder son standing outside, refusing to come into the party because he cannot accept what his father has done with his younger brother. And so these Pharisees should have seen this as a time of celebration, but instead they do not. Well, before we move on to the second controversy, I do need to ask another question, and it's really the same question that they asked of Jesus concerning his disciples, only now I'm asking it of us. Why don't we fast? I mean, we know that other religions do. Catholics give up something for Lent, which begins on Ash Wednesday and goes until Easter Sunday, roughly right at six weeks of time. They give up some item over those nearly six weeks. We know that Muslims fast every day during the month of Ramadan from sunup to sundown. We know that other religions do something very similar We know that people fast for political purposes, that is, they they go on hunger strikes, we call it in those cases, seeking to gain uh, reform in some area or at least bring attention to whatever issue they are fighting for. Others, and it seems to be increasing, are fasting for physical reasons, that is, they are giving up something, some sort of food, in order to help their body be more healthy and sound. Those of you who have fasted have probably done it because you were forced to. That is, a doctor told you you cannot eat 24 hours before the surgery, and therefore you are forced to fast for a specific period of time. And still others sometimes fast due to grief. That is, we just don't feel like eating sometimes when particularly someone close to us has died. But we are so against it that even in those times, some well-meaning soul will come up to us and say, you've just got to eat, which you really don't have to. There are times when it is okay to fast. But again, we're talking about Christian fasting. We are talking about the abstaining from food for a specific period of time for spiritual purposes. Jesus certainly assumed that his followers 
would fast. That's implied here in our text where he tells us the time is coming when I will be taken away from you and then they will fast. It's made more clear in Matthew's gospel where Jesus gives some instructions about fasting and he prefaces those instructions by saying, and when you fast. The purpose of fasting is not to demonstrate our discipline or worse, to force God into responding to us. Sometimes people get the idea that fasting is a way of proving to God just how serious I am and sort of obligating Him then to answer whatever it is that I have been wanting. The purpose of fasting is to hunger for God. Yes, to hunger for God even more so than we do for physical food. Now, what I want you to clearly understand is that fasting is a matter of Christian freedom, not obligation. In other words, there is no verse in the New Testament that explicitly commands us to fast. It is good. It is beneficial for our growth and for our maturity when done for the right reasons. When it's not done for the right reasons, it can often lead to greater discouragement. But again, it is nowhere commanded in the New Testament. A subtle reminder that the, way to, that the way to God is through joyful association with Christ, not rigorous ritual practices or disciplines. So if you choose to fast, wonderful. Do it for the right reasons. But don't be a spiritual judge over those who choose something different than you. You'll be standing in the wrong shoes. You'll be standing with the Pharisees in doing that. And as Jesus warns us in Matthew, if you choose to fast, do not herald it to everybody else. And Jesus tells us there to, to do it quietly. You don't go out on the streets and tell everybody you're fasting. You don't, you don't prepare your face in a way that everyone knows you're fasting. In fact, you, you do the opposite. Because if you do it to be seen by others, then he says you will already have your reward. And that is the, the acclaim of others. But that's not the goal of fasting. So just be careful how you look at others. Now let's move to our second controversy. It is a familiar one in the Gospels, something that we will see on an ongoing basis, and that is now we're not talking about controversy over fasting. We are talking about controversy over the Sabbath. And as we've said previously, the Sabbath ran from sundown Friday until sundown Saturday. And it is difficult for us to understand just how important this issue was in the first century because of our indifference to the Lord's day. Or dare I even say because of our apathy to the Lord's day. And again, I know that I'm saying that to people who are here. And maybe I'm saying it hoping that those who are not here will listen online and think to themselves, maybe I'm apathetic about the Lord's day. But the truth is, we simply have a hard time understanding how important this issue was to them because it is not so important to us. There were two things that distinguished a Jew. Circumcision and the Sabbath. Those were the two things that set them apart from everybody else. It was to be a day of rest because God in creation rested on the seventh day, and as a result, they were to rest in concert with God and therefore be recharged physically. And so no work was to be done. And then it became a day of worship as well, a time to recharge not just physically, but a time to recharge spiritually as well. And this controversy begins with the expectations of others as well, just like the last one. Jesus is with his disciples, and they are walking through a grain field. And that's actually law-breaking number one, though they are not called on it. You could not travel on the Sabbath. 
you could walk a specified number of steps. That was 1,999 paces. That was the limit, which equates to 800 meters, which in our measurement is right at a half a mile. So that is all you could walk on the Sabbath. Anything beyond that was, was wrong, and the disciples are clearly traveling on the Sabbath. But that's not the action that precipitates this controversy and brings up the question. The question is, and I'm rephrasing this a little bit, but the question is, why are your disciples working on the Sabbath? As a day of rest, work was strictly forbidden, although it was allowed if it was necessary. And that's where we would say, oh, every time I've worked, it's necessary. No, necessary to them was a life or death situation. That was the only thing allowed. The only work you could do is if it were a life or death situation. Now, it was permissible to pick grain from a neighbor's field. Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 25 said that that was allowable. doesn't mean you could reap or harvest your neighbor's field, but it meant that as you went through the field, you could take a little bit for yourself. And that's what the disciples were doing. So that part was lawful, but not on the Sabbath. Remember, I told you that the scribes, one of their responsibilities, one of their jobs was to take the scriptural laws and explain them. So we know that the Scriptures say that you can't work on the Sabbath because it's a day of rest. But what's work? And that's what they tried to help answer. And so they came up with 39 categories or kinds of work which were forbidden on the Sabbath. And number three was reaping or harvesting. And that's exactly what they deemed the disciples to be doing on this particular occasion. And so according to their expectations, the disciples of Jesus are violating the law. And they call them on it. And so in response to the expectations of others, Jesus shares an example to consider. Have you not read? He asks, which is basically sarcasm or a slap on the wrist. Because of course they've read it. The problem was, though they had read it many times, they didn't understand it. And he's calling their attention to this. The story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. In fact, let's take the time to read that this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. 1 Samuel 21, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? And so the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be, placed, to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. So here's another example, and I never grow tired of giving these examples. Here is another example of where the more we understand the Old Testament, the more the New Testament opens up to us. 
Because if we don't know what Jesus is talking about when he says, have you never read, and he refers back to this incident in 1 Samuel 21, then we can't possibly understand the connection that he's making in Mark's gospel. So that is why we need to know the Old Testament, among other reasons, of course. So David is fleeing from Saul. He's got some men with him, and they are hungry. And so he goes into the tabernacle, and he asks the priests for bread. The tabernacle is a place, obviously, where they worshipped. They would put the bread there out for the priests. That's the only bread that was there. The priest says, I have no bread except the bread of the presence. Twelve loaves were put out every Sabbath, showing God's presence there. That's why it was called the bread of the presence, demonstrating God's provision for the people. And obviously, the number was representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. But this bread was only to be eaten by the priest. Each week it was taken off, the priest would eat it, and new bread would replace it. Now, there is a concern here because Mark says the priest was a Beathar, but for Samuel says the priest was a Himelech. And I bring it up because I would rather acknowledge that there's a concern and try to answer it for us than to have you go away from here and say, wait a minute, there's a problem. And he didn't bring it up. He was trying to hide something. I believe in the inspiration, the divine inspiration of the Word of God, and therefore I think we can be honest about these things. 1 Samuel chapter 21, it was indeed Ahimelech. And Mark says it's Abiathar. So how do we reconcile those two things? Well, Ahimelech was the priest when, when David went there, though he died shortly thereafter. Because if you know the rest of the story, you know that Saul had all of the priests killed. The only priest that survived was Ahimelech's son, Abiathar, and he ran to David and told David what had happened to the priest immediately after what I just read, and he became, in essence, the priest for David for most of his life and ministry. So why does Mark say Abiathar and 1 Samuel say Ahimelech? Well, some conclude that Mark just made a mistake. I mean, it's as simple as that. Mark made an error, and he put down the wrong man. But again, we believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture, so that is not an answer that is going to satisfy us. So the other answer is that the way that is phrased there where it says, in the time of, can also mean during the lifetime of. And in fact, it can actually be a phrase that refers to the section of the scroll in which this story is found. And since Abiathar was the priest who was most associated with David... Mark then uses that name rather than the actual priest Ahimelech. But regardless, the point is that David and his men ate the bread that was not lawful for them to eat, and yet nowhere in the Old Testament are they condemned or criticized for it. They ate it out of necessity. And here is the principle. Human need takes precedence over ceremonial law. And that is going to be an issue that we see moving forward as well. Now, you might say that the disciples were not under that same urgency. There's no indication that they were starving, but the point remains the same. You know, one of the things that frustrates me when I am out in the community dealing with a company, and there is much that frustrates me, I acknowledge that, but one of the things that frustrates me more than anything is when I'm dealing with someone and they keep saying, but our policy is... 
And I'm trying to share with them a problem that I have and a common sense solution to the problem that's not necessarily going to cost their company money, but I'm telling them, well, well, here's what happened. Here's a solution to what happened, and, and I'll be happy if you go this solution. And they keep saying, but it's not our policy. And I understand they're just doing their job, but the problem is we've not taught people to use common sense solutions to satisfy customers. We've taught them a policy and said, don't deviate from that. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. We have a policy, that is, you do not work on the Sabbath. That includes reaping and harvesting, even if it is just a little for your own use. And therefore, they say the disciples are breaking the law. They don't have the sense, the common sense, to see that there are times when policy needs to be broken. Now, I understand the need for good policies. They are there for accountability. They are there uh, to make sure things are run correctly, but they cannot articulate every circumstance, and so sometimes they need to be overridden, and that is what we see here. So Jesus ends this controversy by declaring His authority. The Sabbath was never meant to be a burden that loaded down the people of God. It was meant to be a gift from God as a joy and refreshment for His people. It was never meant to be turned into so many numerous rules and regulations that one could not even know them, much less follow them. It was given for spiritual growth and maturity. Those of you who went with us to Israel last year will remember that we arrived in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And as a result, while we were on the bus, before we got out of the bus and and into our hotel, we we were told a couple of things. Number one, they said, do not ride the Sabbath elevator. You say, what's a Sabbath elevator? The Sabbath elevator is an elevator that automatically stops on every floor. Why? Because it's work to push a button. So in order for them to avoid working on the Sabbath, which is pushing a button, they have an elevator that automatically stops on every floor. And then the next morning when we got up, which was still the Sabbath, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, we discovered that our breakfast was not nearly as good as it had been every other day. In fact, we couldn't even use the coffee machines where you could select which kind of coffee you wanted or cappuccino or whatever. And why couldn't we use them? Because you had to push a button. And that's work. The Sabbath was never meant to have all of these rules to burden us down. It was meant to be a time of joy and spiritual and physical refreshment. And that's Jesus' point here. And he says, after all, I have a right to say this because I am Lord of the Sabbath, which is in essence another declaration of deity which did not escape their notice His constant disregard of the Sabbath rules will be an ongoing cause of controversy, and we'll notice it again next week. But again, before we close, I must ask us one more question, and it's essentially the same question that was asked of Jesus' disciples. Why don't we honor the Sabbath? I actually had this question posed to me by text a few weeks ago by a young man in this congregation who had evidently come across a YouTube video, no doubt from a Seventh-day Adventist perspective, that he deemed to be making a pretty good point. And so his, his question to me was, this, this video seems to make a lot of good points. Why do we Christians not honor the Sabbath? We clearly don't because the Sabbath is Saturday, unless you count your worship of sports, but that's a whole other topic. 
we celebrate the Lord's Day, that is Sunday. So why do we do that? We do that in recognition of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, they very quickly, after the resurrection of Christ, switched from celebrating the Sabbath to celebrating the Lord's Day. And that is why you will see the phrase in the New Testament, on the first day of the week, after the resurrection. On the first day of the week, they gathered which you have to understand is a phenomenal change to happen so completely and so quickly because most of the early Christians were, in fact, previous Jews. That is, they were, they were raised in Judaism, therefore they were steeped in Sabbath observance, one of the two characteristic marks of being a Jew, and yet they quickly forsook it for worship on the Lord's Day because Jesus was alive, which is why we sometimes say, We do not celebrate the resurrection of Christ on one Sunday a year, which is called Easter, when there will be many, many more people here. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ every single Sunday. But now, what about the rules? Okay, I get that much. We've transferred that to uh, Sunday rather than Saturday. What about the rules? Do, Do those rules transfer over, and now we have to guard what we do or don't do on the Lord's Day? I've told you numerous times about a pastor friend of mine from our first church who was a Presbyterian minister just down the street from us who was an immense help to me in that first church. I went to him anytime I had an issue, and he was a great mentor for those five years that I was in that first church. But I disagreed with him on this because he had all kinds of rules that his family could and could not do on Sunday. And the one I remember the most is they could not throw a ball on Sunday because that was, well, I don't know, that was wrong, throwing a ball, but they could throw a Frisbee. I don't know what the difference was between a Frisbee and a ball, but there was some difference in his mind. So they had all of these rules about what could or or could not be done, and and many of us were raised on those kinds of rules, most of which have now, now gone by the wayside, so much so that some would even say today that it's legalistic to say you even have to go to church on Sunday, which I would disagree with. But this is actually a much deeper issue theologically than you might think. And there's more involved in it than just me declaring one thing or another because it is not just a theological question, but it blends in a lot of tradition as well. And we will have the opportunity to look at this repeatedly because so much of what Jesus did did in fact occur on the Sabbath and as we said last week, in part to provoke these consequences, uh, these controversies I should say. But I do still believe that the Lord's Day is a gift from God For our physical refreshment and for our spiritual nourishment, it is for our good, it is for our growth in godliness. And as we'll talk about next week, I also believe it's a day to perform acts of mercy, something that we forget as part of it. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that the ignoring of this principle, the ignoring of the Lord's day as a time for physical rest and spiritual refreshment is at least in part the cause for so many of the struggles that we are seeing today when we talk about anxiety and stress and all of those other things. And we fail to make that connection, that because we're not recharging ourselves physically every week and because we're not recharging ourselves spiritually every week, and I know you'd make the case that we need to spiritually recharge every day, and I would agree with you, but that's not what I'm talking about at the moment. But because we fail to make that uh, a priority, we often then have other consequences. It's easy to get bogged down in rules and regulations. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that Christianity is about a relationship with Christ. Now, that does not mean that there are not commands for us to obey. 
It simply means that we obey because we have a relationship. We don't obey in order to get one or even to keep one. So the ultimate question is not, why don't you fast? The ultimate question is not, why do you work on Sunday or why don't you honor the Sabbath? The ultimate question is, do you know Christ? Have you been forgiven of your sins because by faith you have placed your trust in who He is and what He has done, and therefore you are in response to that living for Him? So let's not lose sight of the main thing as we discuss some of these other controversies. Let's pray.